Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Welcome to the broadcast. In Washington, there is a lot of conversation, a lot of excitement about the passage and signing of the Inflation Reduction Act, IRA. It has particularly significance for the not-for-profit part of the electric utility sector. And today I have two experts on that part of the very complex electric supply system. They are Joy Ditto, President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Public Power Association, and Louis Finkel, Senior Vice President of Government Relations for the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. Welcome both. Louis, what does this act do for your members? Well, Llewellyn, for the first time in more than 20 years, tax credits are going to be accessible for our not-for-profit utilities. For far too long, for-profit entities, consume, uh, and not consumer-owned, not municipal utilities, but the investor-owned utilities, have had access to tax credits to deploy new technology. And the provisions included in this bill, for the first time, make those tax provisions accessible to us. They create a level of parity where we don't have to find a for-profit partner to monetize those tax credits, that we ourselves, as the utilities, on behalf of the consumers that own our utilities or serve by our utilities, can monetize those credits ourselves and pass those savings directly along to the consumers. Joy. What is this going to do for your members? Are we going to see a sudden surge in new generation, new green generation, and more moves towards a carbon-free economy? Yes, that's the short answer. Um, this is really exciting. Well, and thanks for having me on, by the way. And as Lewis mentioned, we've been working on this actually for over 20 years, since the 1992 Energy Policy Act, we've been looking at this idea of parity or comparability in the tax code for publicly owned utilities, for um, other not-for-profit utilities like rural co-ops, so that we can really be unleashed in the marketplace as we continue to drive toward a cleaner energy future. And the, the mechanism that is included in the IRA um, is called a refundable direct pay credit, but it really just allows us to take advantage of these tax credits that have been available to our for-profit brethren for many years, both in the form of an investment tax credit and a production tax credit. So, um, and then there are a variety of new technologies and some existing technologies that we can take advantage of directly. Well, uh, give me some of those technologies. Yeah, so there, some of the existing technologies are things like wind and solar, uh, but also new technologies like hydrogen, we're also looking at um, kind of new technologies in the arena of nuclear, but some, some in the existing technologies of nuclear as well. So uh, we're excited about all of them. And frankly, our members are involved in deploying all of these technologies, but already, and we're innovative already, but the key is that that dollar value that the federal government has assigned to support these technologies has not been um, felt by our customers in, in communities nationwide serving 90 million Americans have not been able to take direct advantage of these tax credits previously. That's almost 30% of the industry. So this is really about parity and it's really about allowing our members, large and small, to, to do some additional innovative things in their communities. 
Lewis, Lewis, we say tax credits. How much money is on the table? Is it 20%, 30%? Well, for most of these tax credits, it's 30%. Uh, and that's a really big deal, right? So a $100 million project means that it's only 70 million that is passed along to the consumer members um, or the communities that own the utility. Um, these are real savings that have a real impact. And in a lot of cases, these tax incentives and the ability for our members to utilize these tax incentives is going to be the difference between deploying these new projects and not. And let, let me add one thing. Joy did a great job of touching on a lot of the technologies that will get deployed. One of the other technologies that's really important uh, for, for electric cooperatives is the deployment of carbon capture and sequestration projects on existing baseload and on new baseload power. And part of why uh, I, I touched that, Llewellyn, is that intermittent resources are without question going to be an important part of our energy mix forward. But what makes the grid work, what keeps the grid operational, what keeps the lights on, is the availability of that baseload dispatchable power. And so having nuclear, having dispatchable power with carbon capture and sequestration is critical if you're gonna have any chance of realistically bringing down that curve on carbon emissions. Lewis, uh, our viewers and listeners are smart as hell, but they may not be familiar with terms like dispatchable and baseload. Uh, could you uh, explain those slightly? Sure, of course. So baseload power is simply power that's always available. It's always on. It's where you turn on the generating unit, the power plant, and you can dial up and use, all, and, and use it at full capacity. You can dial down. You don't have to depend on the sun shining or the wind blowing or any other condition. It's just a matter of having the fuel available to ratchet it up. Um, so I think that's the, the, the first piece of it. Um, intermittent resources, again, are gonna be an important piece of the equation. That's, wind, it, that's wind and sunshine. Correct. But without, back, without that dispatchable power behind it, um, you can't ensure that you realize the full benefit of the capacity provided by additional deployment of wind and solar. Joy, can you give us some examples of uh, how this will work in the short term? Where will we see changes? When will we see ground broken on new plant? Because as we move to an electrified economy, particularly surface transportation, we're going to see a huge rise in the demand for electricity, while simultaneously uh, the utilities are trying to back out of coal and to some extent natural gas. Yeah, so a great question. And I want to emphasize what Lewis already said, which is, and public power also supports carbon capture utilization and storage technologies, which this applies to as well, which is hugely important. And, and it means that we might not have to back out of fossil fuels completely if we can develop these technologies and enable us to use them more fully into the future. In addition to keeping online or bringing online new baseload technologies like nuclear, uh, kind of small modular reactors, which is which are more affordable. Um, in addition to some of these existing intermittent technologies, we're also looking at hydrogen as a potential baseload, but it's still in its infancy and, and still expensive. So some of these types of incentives will bring down the price point, which is another thing that we need to maintain is that affordability piece as we move into the future. But in terms of the 
the what this means kind of on on the short term is well we first have to get implementation through treasury through the internal revenue service so we're not quite there we're not quite ready as of this uh filming to say go out and and take advantage of these tax credits tomorrow so we will need to work with the treasury to make sure this is implemented correctly we believe there's some good precedent in the tax code already um, that enables us to take advantage of, of this um, pretty easily, particularly for the, the public power side. Um, the federal gasoline excise tax enables uh, public power entities and other well, state and local government entities to take advantage of um, a sort of a tax-based um, incentive. And, and they, they file accordingly. So we're hopeful that IRS and Treasury will uh, just kind of use some of those precedents already to implement this. Um, we're talking about uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation valued these tax credits at $15 billion, billion with a B, a year. So again, this means billions of dollars in incentives for us going forward. So I think our members, I've already talked to them over the last several weeks, and they are excited, ready to move on some of these projects that maybe they've been holding off on, that are smaller, more bespoke to their communities, which is also exciting because they can really gear it toward what their community wants. So I think in the short term, we have to get to implementation, but in the longer term, you're going to see a variety of projects come online in the public power side, and I'm sure in the co-op side as well. Um, Joy, while you have the floor, tell us about your members. Uh, give us some examples of who are members. We know maybe people have heard of the Tennessee Valley Authority, a huge public power entity, but have they heard of uh, some of the smaller ones? And there must be a lot of small ones if you have 2,000 member utilities. Absolutely. So um, we have Utilities, first of all, in 49 out of the 50 states and in five territories. The only state we're not in is, is Hawaii, unfortunately. Um, but I know we have some co-op brethren in Hawaii. Um, and we are from very, very small, I mean, communities serving less than 100 people <laughs> to communities serving millions of people. So our largest utility is Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Um, and again, there's a there's a utility called Orlando, Oklahoma, serving 93 customers. So, um, so that you know again gives you a scope. But the the vast majority of our members are in communities of 10,000 people or fewer. So again, small communities, often serving serving sort of those rural areas that that Lewis's members also that they serve. Um, we do have some. Other, you kind of alluded to it earlier, Llewellyn, where we do have some public utility districts and irrigation districts that look a little bit more rural than that, but mostly we're in kind of these smaller communities, in some cases, large cities, a smattering of large cities across the country. Um, but, you know, I mentioned LA, uh, Seattle, Tacoma, San Antonio, Austin, Jacksonville, Florida are, are a few of the cities that we're in. Lewis, would you do roughly the same job for us? Tell us a little more about the rural cooperatives and the concept of the last mile. So Llewellyn, in many cases, the electric cooperative was that provider of last resort in many rural communities. Um, our members you know, don't get as large as the city of Los Angeles because they tend to be more in kind of exurb and rural communities, but our members get as small as 2000 meters 
um, and get as big as 300,000 meters uh, where they um, are serving what used to be rural communities, which now have become suburban communities. Um, that's across 48 states um, with and serving 42 million Americans. And one of the most important things um, about the electric cooperatives is, you know, when we talk about words like affordability and reliability, and I know this is the same for Joy and her members um, and, and our, our public power partners, is those words aren't just kind of talk. Those are the principles by which we live by. And for electric cooperatives, we serve 92% of the persistent poverty counties in the country. The communities we provide power to that own our utilities are some of the most vulnerable in the country. Uh, and, and a minute ago, you asked a really interesting, important question, Llewellyn, which I'd like to come back to, which is kind of short-term, how this is gonna work, how this is gonna impact. And I think Joy did a great job of walking through what that process is gonna look like. But you mentioned the surface transportation and the desire to move to electrification for, for um, to, to decarbonize. And so that is such an interesting challenge. There's all this talk about, we need to you know, decarbonize the electric sector, decarbonize the economy. But when you say decarbonize the economy, what that really means is more electricity. It means we need more electricity to power all these electric vehicles. And don't take my word for it. The National Academy of Science, which is reasonably un unimpeachable, says you need an additional 170% of generating capacity to facilitate the transition of the surface transportation fleet. And that's not 170% after you shut down coal or after you shut down natural gas. That's 170% on top of what we have today. Why I raise that is as we talk about an energy transition, as we talk about an American economy that is, is not just dependent on electricity, but is increasingly gonna be more dependent on electricity. We've gotta ensure reliability. That means we've gotta have a thoughtful, reasonable transition as we decarbonize. We need to make sure there's time and technology and for all that is good, build more transmission to bring all these new resources that these tax incentives are gonna unleash to market. Um, all the while trying to deploy all this electric vehicle charging infrastructure, which as Joy and I really know from talking to our members at the local level, it's gonna require a wholesale kind of rebuild in some cases of that distribution system to accommodate all this EV charging for these smaller systems that never had anticipated that kind of electricity to flow on their systems. Uh, a question for both of you and uh, uh, just jumped on it. Um, both of your membership, some are very small. They don't have any generating at all. It's a fairly small percentage. Some of them just are wireless companies, as we say, which uh, are distributors of electricity. What is the breakdown? And I'm interested in whether any of the distributors, the wireless companies, will now get into the generating business. There's a lot that Lewis just said in answering that other question or kind of circling back that other question too that I find really interesting and, and on point. Uh, so I wanna kind of um, you know, uh, expand upon his remarks really quickly and then I want, I'll, I'll respond to your, your question. Um, it kind of goes back to, we are gonna have even more responsibility right now as a sector across the board. We are providing service at 99.999% reliability. Um, and that is hugely important and 
and it needs that the lights stay on the vast majority of the time. But when we're also responsible for the transportation sector, the building sectors, all of these other sectors, even more so than we are now, that, that responsibility becomes even higher, which is why when we're talking about reliability, we're not just saying it. Uh, we, you know, our members are the experts. They're provisioning this, this essential service every day. So I want to just emphasize that point that Lewis made so well in the sense that the distribution side of the equation has long been, you know, again, some of these smaller entities that are provisioning service out in rural areas or small communities are getting their generation from a larger entity, either another large public power entity or co-op entity or investor owned or, or an independent power producer because of the economies of scale that's typically been helpful to consumers um, from an affordability standpoint. But now we're kind of looking at a little bit more of that push out into the distribution segment of the industry for distributed energy resources, um, for electric vehicles, kind of this whole assimilation of electricity into all aspects of our lives is going to mean that the distribution utility side is more important. And they are actively considering deploying some of these smaller scale generation facilities to respond to their community's needs and wants. We do things called community solar projects, and we've been doing more and more of those. Kind of reminds me of like a community pool. You know, you, you pay, everyone pays for it, and then you can all use it. And that's what we've done with solar projects. And again, we're going to be able to do more of that because the money side will pencil out more for those smaller communities to do that themselves, rather than having to partner with a third party to do it. So I think we're going to see more of those distribution-only entities getting into some of this small-scale generation than they have previously. And I think there's another impetus to that, too, which is what we saw with the winter storm URI situation a year and a half ago or so, where some of our that smaller was, guys... Uh, that, was, uh, that was in Texas. Texas yeah. No, it wasn't more. just in Texas. Well, and it was not just in Texas. It was all. It was up in Kansas, Arkansas, it was up Oklahoma. In, in Oklahoma, and in Missouri. Um, this was a, uh, an, a hugely impactful uh, from a price standpoint, and in the case of Texas, from a reliability standpoint, for some of these smaller communities who got hit with exorbitant natural gas prices. They're interested in really um, being more in charge of their own destiny in some cases. So I can see some of these smaller entities really getting more into the business of provisioning generation services to their communities for the, you know, for reliability reasons, for emergency purposes. So I see it having that ancillary benefit as well. Thank you. Uh, Lewis. You, uh, you might want to expand on and explain uh, distributed energy sure. resources. So electric, for, uh, well, within electric cooperatives, it's a similar story to, uh, pu to public power. Um, 840 distribution cooperatives, mostly powered by generation and transmission cooperatives, but a lot of them are purchasing from either a municipal partner, sometimes an investor-owned utility. And in some cases, much like our colleagues uh, in public power are buying from uh, big federal utilities like the Bonneville Power Administration or the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, but increasingly, um, and Joy hit on this, and it's kind of one of my favorite uh, stories to talk about, is community solar. Um, electric cooperatives are the largest owners of community solar in the country. Um, and part of that was because, uh, because of our local control, our local governance um, being owned by the community, 
we can make quick, nimble decisions to deploy uh, technology. Uh, and have done that in lots of different communities, whether it was a uh, solar and um, battery demonstration project we did in partnership with the Department of Energy in North Carolina, or some of our communities out West in states that are solar heavy, like New Mexico or Arizona or Colorado, that are deploying community solar to provide an additional layer of both resiliency, reliability, and create downward pricing pressure. And I think that those combination of factors really makes it um, uh, you know, a, a valuable tool. So I think what we're starting to see is that, that economy of scale, the way that we've developed the technology, nascent technologies, that we've brought down the price point, uh, and if we could only address some of these supply chain woes, it'll make it a whole lot easier to deploy more and more of these community solar and distributed projects around the country. Um, thank you. I, I would like somebody to explain DER distributed energy resources, just so the viewers and listeners understand it. Sure, and I'm sorry if I didn't touch on that well enough. No, 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 please. So distributed energy resources is, is instead of at utility scale, um, where you start to deploy them more on a localized level, where you have kind of a system operator, where you have localized or community solar, you have kind of micro wind, you're using um, hydroelectric heat, uh, you're using geothermal heat pumps, um, and energy efficient controls to more effectively kind of manage the system on a more real-time basis um, than just worrying about generating the power, pushing it over the power line and using it as you see fit. It's a, it's a more kind of two-way communication and engaged program of, uh, of energy resource management uh, as opposed to the traditional way uh, that it was done you know, 50 years ago. And what it does is it creates these great opportunities for a better relationship between the utility and the consumer. It get, puts more control in the consumer's hands about managing their energy consumption and allows for more efficient control of load to flow in both directions. I'm told by one of your members, uh, uh, Rayburn Electric down there in Texas, yeah. that in fact it can save or add to the available electricity about yeah. 10%, which is a huge amount. It all depends oh. on how much, uh, how, how, on the different services and different technologies deployed on the system, but absolutely, it has it has a great degree of potential. And frankly, I think that potential is going to continue to go up as this conversation continues about load management and and better and and, and technology enhancing that system management. Yeah, and I think add to that, Llewellyn, if you don't mind, um, you know that it really at its kind of um, end game level at some point, you, you're going to have individual consumers, individual customers in their homes or their businesses, really being able to use a variety of technologies. Um, their their uh, vehicle is a charging you know, unit. Their, um, their other, you know, maybe they have solar on their rooftop um, that they're bringing to bear. Or if they're a, if they're a farmer, they might have some, some wind on their facility, you know, on their land. And they are bringing those resources to bear with the utilities full knowledge and ability to absorb it at the distribution level, which, which ties into some additional technology that you need to do that. Um, but that is kind of the end game is to be able to really assimilate as the distribution utility, all of those variety of resources to optimize the system, create more efficiency, and, and make sure that the reliability of that distribution grid is not disrupted when you're bringing those generation, uh, those small generation elements online. That's really kind of, it's again, the end goal for something like 
a microgrid, which really is a distributed energy, you know, entity like our members are, they're kind of the original microgrids in many ways. And so that's what you want to have happen eventually. Again, it takes additional technology deployment. It takes, there's a level of complexity that we haven't really overcome yet and a level of affordability and reliability we haven't overcome yet, uh, but we will. And I think that's where we're going as an industry, um, at least in the longer term. Uh, when you say uh, community solar, uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about rooftops or are we talking about larger installations or a mix of the two? Joy? Yeah, I, I can take that one. It's kind of a combination of things. In the case of some of our members actually have rooftop solar on for example, schools or, or bus, um, the roofs of where, you know, bus shelters, uh, kind of transit areas, and they're, that's how, so it's not all in one place. It's not kind of in a field somewhere, but they're using those different arrays kind of in conjunction with each other as, a, as again, a pool of resources, and that's deemed the community solar. Um, our members also, in some cases, have solar rooftop programs where they work with individual homeowners or business owners to help them deploy that technology and then the utility helps manage it for them so that they are, it's kind of a one-stop shop turnkey service um, so it kind of just depends on the community and just like is the case with a lot of stuff in public power and i'm sure in the co-ops it really just depends there's some customization to all of this but the idea is a much more localized resource bad weather it's the new normal uh, and it's everywhere and we never know when it's going to strike. How are the utilities, how are your members, both of you dealing with those? Let's start with you, Lewis. Well, Llewellyn, it's the hardest challenge that exists for an electric utility. Um, you know, Joy hit on, that, on reliability and reliable service is, e is I don't wanna overstate it, but is easy when conditions are perfect. It's when conditions get rough that keeping the lights on and restoring power uh, rapidly becomes more difficult. The more difficult the storm, the more urgent the need to restore power um, because folks are generally suffering, their homes have been destroyed, their businesses have been destroyed, there's a loss of life, there's you know tragic circumstances. And it doesn't matter if it's a wildfire or a flood or a hurricane, tornado, whatever the natural disaster is, um, it has a profound impact on the community and on the people that they serve. That is our show for today. Thank you, Joy Ditto of the American Public Power Association and Lewis Finkel of the Rural Electric Cooperative Association. The electric supply comes from the most complex real-time machine on earth. Just think of 3,000 utilities working together so that I can plug my computer in to play a game. I actually don't play games, but um, uh, so that I can <laughs> uh, charge my Kindle. I thank you both very much for your enlightening conversation. Please come back. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.